Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Seven years to set against your 16, retorted Eliza. Going, are you? Well, I hope this new society of yours will be able to keep Avonlea from running any further downhill, but I haven't much hope of it. Anne and Diana got themselves thankfully out, and drove away as fast as the fat pony could go. As they rounded the curve below the beechwood, a plump figure came speeding over Mr. Andrews' pasture, waving to them excitedly. It was Catherine Andrews, and she was so out of breath that she could hardly speak, but she thrust a couple of quarters into Anne's hand. "'That's my contribution to painting the hall,' she gasped. "'I'd like to give you a dollar, but I don't dare take more for my egg money, for Eliza would find out if I did. I'm real interested in your society, and I believe you're going to do a lot of good. I'm an optimist. I have to be living with Eliza. I must hurry back before she misses me. She thinks I'm feeding the hens. I hope you'll have good luck canvassing, and don't be cast down over what Eliza said. The world is getting better. It certainly is.' The next house was Daniel Blair's. "'Now it all depends on whether his wife is home or not,' said Diana, as they jolted along a deep-rutted lane. "'If she is, we won't get a cent. Everybody says Dan Blair doesn't dare have his hair cut without asking her permission, and it's certain she's very close, to state it moderately. She says she has to be just before she's generous. But Mrs. Lynde says she's so much before that generosity never catches up with her at all.' Anne related their experience at the Blair place to Marilla that evening. We tied the horse and then rapped at the kitchen door. Nobody came, but the door was open, and we could hear somebody in the pantry going on dreadfully. We couldn't make out the words, but Diana says she knows they were swearing by the sound of them. I can't believe that of Mr. Blair, for he is always so quiet and meek. But at least he had great provocation, for Marilla, when that poor man came to the door, red as a beet, with perspiration streaming down his face, he had on one of his wife's big gingham aprons. "'I can't get this dern thing off,' he said, "'for the strings are tied in a hard knot and I can't bust em, so you'll have to excuse me, ladies.' We begged him not to mention it, and went in and sat down. Mr. Blair sat down, too. He twisted the apron round to his back and rolled it up. But he did look so ashamed and worried that I felt sorry for him, and Diana said she feared we had called it an inconvenient time. "'Oh, not at all,' said Mr. Blair, trying to smile. You know he is always very polite. "'I'm a little busy, getting ready to bake a cake, as it were.' My wife got a telegram today that her sister from Montreal is coming tonight, and she's gone to the train to meet her, and left orders for me to make a cake for tea. She read out the recipe, and told me what to do, but I've clean forgot half the directions already. And it says, flavor according to taste. What does that mean? How can you tell? And what if my taste doesn't happen to be other people's taste? Would a tablespoon of vanilla be enough for a small layer cake? I felt sorrier than ever for the poor man. He didn't seem to be in his proper sphere at all. I had heard of hen-pecked husbands, and now I felt that I saw one. It was on my lips to say, "'Mr. Blair, if you'll give us a subscription for the hall, I'll mix up your cake for you.' But I suddenly thought it wouldn't be neighborly to drive too sharp a bargain with a fellow-creature in distress, so I offered to mix the cake for him without any conditions at all. He just jumped at my offer. He said he'd been used to making his own bread before he was married, but he feared cake was beyond him, and yet he hated to disappoint his wife. He got me another apron, and Diana beat the eggs, and I mixed the cake. 
Mr. Blair ran about and got us the materials. He had forgotten all about his apron, and when he ran it streamed out behind him, and Diana said she thought she would die to see it. He said he could bake the cake all right—he was used to that—and then he asked for our list and he put down four dollars. So you see we were rewarded. But even if he hadn't given a cent I'd always feel that we had done a truly Christian act in helping him. Theodore White's was the next stopping place. Neither Anne nor Diana had ever been there before, and they had only a very slight acquaintance with Mrs. Theodore, who was not given to hospitality. Should they go to the back or front door? While they held a whispered consultation, Mrs. Theodore appeared at the front door with an armful of newspapers. Deliberately she laid them down, one by one, on the porch floor, and the porch steps, and then down the path to the very feet of her mystified callers. "'Will you please wipe your feet carefully on the grass, and then walk on these papers?' she said anxiously. "'I've just swept the house all over, and I can't have any more dust tracked in. The path's been real muddy since the rain yesterday.' "'Don't you dare laugh!' warned Anne in a whisper as they marched along the newspapers. "'And I implore you, Diana, not to look at me, no matter what she says, or I shall not be able to keep a sober face.' The papers extended across the hall and into a prim, fleckless parlour. Anne and Diana sat down gingerly on the nearest chairs and explained their errand. Mrs. White heard them politely, interrupting only twice—once to chase out an adventurous fly, and once to pick up a tiny wisp of grass that had fallen on the carpet from Anne's dress. Anne felt wretchedly guilty, but Mrs. White subscribed two dollars and paid the money down. "'To prevent us from having to go back for it,' Diana said when they got away. Mrs. White had the newspapers gathered up before they had their horse untied, and as they drove out of the yard they saw her busily wielding a broom in the hall. "'I've always heard that Mrs. Theodore White was the neatest woman alive, and I'll believe it after this,' said Diana, giving way to her suppressed laughter as soon as it was safe. "'I am glad she has no children,' said Anne solemnly. "'It would be dreadful beyond words for them if she had.'" At the Spencers, Mrs. Isabella Spencer made them miserable by saying something ill-natured about everyone in Avonlea. Mr. Thomas Bolter refused to give anything because the hall, when it had been built twenty years before, hadn't been built on the site he recommended. Mrs. Esther Bell, who was the picture of health, took half an hour to detail all her aches and pains, and sadly put down fifty cents, because she wouldn't be there that time next year to do it. No, she would be in her grave. Their worst reception, however, was at Simon Fletcher's. When they drove into the yard they saw two faces peering at them through the porch window, but although they rapped and waited patiently and persistently, nobody came to the door. Two decidedly ruffled and indignant girls drove away from Simon Fletcher's. Even Anne admitted that she was beginning to feel discouraged. But the tide turned after that. Several Sloane homesteads came next, where they got liberal subscriptions, and from that to the end they fared well with only an occasional snub. Their last place of call was at Robert Dixon's by the Pond Bridge. They stayed to tea here, although they were nearly home, rather than risk offending Mrs. Dixon, who had the reputation of being a very touchy woman. While they were there, old Mrs. James White called in. "'I've just been down to Lorenzo's,' she announced. "'He's the proudest man in Avonlea this minute. What do you think? There's a brand new boy there, and after seven girls that's quite an event, I can tell you.' Anne pricked up her ears, and when they drove away she said, "'I'm going straight to Lorenzo White's.' "'But he lives on the White Sands Road, and it's quite a distance out of our way,' protested Diana. "'Gilbert and Fred will canvass him.' "'They are not going around until next Saturday, and it will be too late by then,' said Anne firmly. "'The novelty will be worn off. Lorenzo White is dreadfully mean, but he will subscribe to anything just now. We mustn't let such a golden opportunity slip, Diana.' The result justified Anne's foresight. 
Mr. White met them in the yard, beaming like the sun upon an Easter day. When Anne asked for a subscription, he agreed enthusiastically. "'Certain, certain! Just put me down for a dollar more than the highest subscription you've got.' "'That will be five dollars. Mr. Daniel Blair put down four, said Anne, half afraid. But Lorenzo did not flinch. Five it is, and here's the money on the spot. Now I want you to come into the house. There's something in there worth seeing, something very few people have seen as yet. Just come in and pass your opinion." "'What will we say if the baby isn't pretty?' whispered Diana in trepidation as they followed the excited Lorenzo into the house. "'Oh, there will certainly be something else nice to say about it,' said Anne easily. There always is about a baby." The baby was pretty, however, and Mr. White felt that he got his five dollars' worth of the girl's honest delight over the plump little newcomer. But that was the first, last, and only time that Lorenzo White ever subscribed to anything. Anne, tired as she was, made one more effort for the public wheel that night, slipping over the fields to interview Mr. Harrison, who was, as usual, smoking his pipe on the veranda with Ginger beside him. Strictly speaking, he was on the Carmody Road. But Jane and Gertie, who were not acquainted with him save by doubtful report, had nervously begged Anne to canvass him. Mr. Harrison, however, flatly refused to subscribe a cent, and all Anne's wiles were in vain. "'But I thought you approved of our society, Mr. Harrison,' she mourned. "'So I do, so I do. But my approval doesn't go as deep as my pocket, Anne.' "'A few more experiences such as I have had to-day would make me as much of a pessimist as Miss Eliza Andrews,' Anne told her reflection in the east gable mirror at bedtime. End of chapter 6